Wow, what an exciting day. All that hard-fought athletic competition, the thrill of the awards. How can I keep you interested now? How about a prison break? Is that cool? All right, yeah. A prison break where all the prisoners stay in their cells. What? Yeah, that's what happens. That's what happens. Acts chapter 16. I'm going to start before we get to prison. I'm going to start actually before Paul got Paul and Silas got to Philippi when they were thinking about where the Lord was going to use them to spread the gospel next and they were in the middle of Turkey in some areas that in those days were called Phrygia and Galatia. You probably have heard of Galatia kids because Paul wrote a letter to the Galatians. Um, So in Acts 16, verse 6, we begin to read God's word this evening. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man from Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrake, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are our servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. 
And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is God's word. Let's ask him to write it on our hearts. Father, please teach us from this amazing story the way you set people free, the way you set Lydia free, the way you set the slave girl free, the way you set the jailer free. Paul and Silas were already free, we know, even though they were in prison. They were free because they belonged to Jesus. Father, teach us to live in the freedom that Jesus gives. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, I suppose the church growth experts, if they looked at the founding of the church at Philippi, would cringe a little bit at the core group that Paul was assembling here. Maybe the first one, Lydia, since she is a businesswoman, and apparently a businesswoman who has had enough success and uh, financial uh, effectiveness that uh, she has a large enough household that she can take in Paul and his team, Maybe she, they would think, would be at least a potentially good supporter of the church in the future. But after all, she was a woman and couldn't really be ordained as an elder. So uh, there's Lydia. And then we're not sure whether the slave girl became a member of the church, but uh, since by the power of the name of Jesus she had been set free, from this possession by an evil spirit that at least presumed to tell the future, and that possession of that evil spirit had turned her into somebody who was exploited by her owners. It's not surprising, at least, I wouldn't be at all surprised, if out of gratitude, if her owners decided she was not worth anything anymore and they sold her off, that she somehow would find a way to be part of the church. But you know, she's not going to be a very big giver either, and not much leadership potential there. So we're down to one man. Well, no, actually, there could be more, come to think of it, because as Paul and Silas were singing, the prisoners were listening. So there might be a whole congregation of inmates. Hmm. And one jailer, perhaps a hardened military officer 
because Philippi, as we know from other sources, not, was not only a Roman colony, as, as Luke tells us here, but was a place where there was a major military outpost for the Romans. And a lot of military retired to Philippi in the northern part, in Macedonia, the northern part of Greece. Sort of like San Diego is a good retirement town for military. People come there at some time or another and think, I'm going to come back here someday. My wife and I go to Lambs Players Theater on Coronado, and we always think, wouldn't it be nice to live on Coronado? And we realize only an admiral could afford to live on Coronado. But uh, a lot of military settle in San Diego, a military town. So here's a jailer. What a great core group to get a congregation started. In fact, it's amazing to think about how very different they are from one another. Where would you ever expect these three to come together and cross paths apart from the amazing grace of God? So it's an amazing story, not just the jailbreak in which all the prisoners stay put, but the whole story about the way the Lord Jesus sets people free. I wanted to read from before Paul and Silas arrived at Philippi just to illustrate the way Jesus is orchestrating this whole thing. You saw in those early verses that Paul and Silas, that new team that had been launched after the uh, Apostolic Council, we haven't really talked about the council, we can't talk about everything, but a new team that had moved their way back through the middle of Asia Minor to reestablish and to strengthen the churches there in Iconium and Antioch and Lystra and Derbe. Then, as they wanted to move further to the west in Asia... We read that the Holy Spirit would not allow them to go there. How did he let himself, let his will known, be known? Perhaps because Silas, we know, was a prophet, and Paul also received special revelation from God. Perhaps it was a vision, or perhaps it was the Holy Spirit just revealing to them that they were not to go to Asia. So then they tried to cut north, and north to the east, to Bithynia, right to the south of the Black Sea. If you have a Bible with maps in the back, you can trace all the places they tried to go in Asia Minor. And there the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, but now he's identified specifically as the Spirit who's come from Jesus and is applying the work and the lordship of Jesus in their lives. The Spirit of Jesus wouldn't let them go that way either. He's like sort of one of those sheepdogs that's moving the flock back and forth. No, you can't go that way. And then he comes around and heads them off. No, you can't go that way. And he herds them to the northern coast to Troas. Its older name was Troy. If you've read or heard some of Homer's great books, Troy, Troas, uh, that's, that's the city. By the time of the first century, it has this name. And maybe they thought Troas was the place because it was a major seaport on the northern Aegean Sea. But that really wasn't the reason that the Holy Spirit was herding them toward the northwest. Rather, he was putting them in the same town where they could get a ship so that they could immediately obey that appeal that came by vision, a man from Macedonia saying, we need help. Paul and Silas and their team, what kind of help could they give? Well, Luke tells us... (coughs) We sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. That's the help we have for these folks in Macedonia. We can preach the good news. Like Peter and John said to the lame man, I don't have silver or gold that can help you, but I have something better. In the name of Jesus, stand and walk. Well, here, 
they have the help they can bring. Did you notice that Luke suddenly says we here? We concluded. We sought to go. God is calling us to preach. That's his little clue that at Troas, he joined the team. Now, where Luke originally came from is debated. Maybe he grew up in Antioch and Syria. Uh, we don't know. But at this point, he begins to join the team. And so what he's recording for us now are things that he just didn't get by interviewing other witnesses, but he saw himself. So we went across, made the voyage to Samothrake. This is the way it would be pronounced in Greek. Looks like Samothrace, doesn't it, kids? Samothrace. Samothrake. And on to Neapolis, that's a new city, and then on to Philippi. Philippi was, as I said, a Roman colony, a major city. It was a city named after somebody. Who can guess who it was named after? Philip! That's right, you're good. And Antioch is named after Antiochus, right. All these humble ancient kings that named cities after themselves. Philip was the father of Alexander the Great. Philip of Macedonia, a great king, although not as great a conqueror as his son would be. Philip hired the philosopher Aristotle to train his son Alexander. Philip was the great king of Macedonia until his son got on the scene and conquered virtually all of the world to the east and to the south. So this city was founded by Philip, named after himself, humbly, and uh, was at, by the time of the Roman Empire was a, a significant City, But did you notice, this is a city that had no synagogue in it. Typically, when Paul arrived at any city, he would head for the synagogue, for the place where the Jewish law, the law that God gave to Moses, would be read and taught, where prayers would be offered, where the Jewish people would gather to worship the Lord. There's no synagogue here. So Luke says, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. As I mentioned earlier, to have a synagogue at that time, in that place at least, you had to have ten Jewish men who had enough free time to, have, to devote to the study of the law of God. And there were apparently not that many Jewish people in this town. So they met a group of women there who were praying. Probably they were expecting to find people who were listening, uh, longing for and wanting to worship the God of Israel. The prominent one here is Lydia. She is a businesswoman. She's from Thyatira, which is actually back across the Aegean Sea, over on the east side. And she is a worshiper of God, a God-fearer, like Cornelius, which some of us were thinking about earlier today. And wealthy, because she had a large enough household that when she came to believe in Jesus, she could invite Paul and Silas and Luke and whoever else was on their team all to lodge in her household. No doubt she had servants as well. She gave that invitation because the Lord did something wonderful. We saw it earlier this week, but just let me point it out to you again. It's in verse 14. Lydia from Thyatira, a worshiper of the Lord, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord opened her heart. The Holy Spirit has guided Luke in a variety of ways that he expresses how God is the one 
who draws us out of unbelief and out of death and to trust in Jesus. That's not something we just do on our own. We don't just make up our minds on our own. Because as the Apostle Paul says, left to ourselves, we're dead in trespasses and sins. And so we need God to intervene and in His grace to apply the work of Jesus to our hearts so that we can trust in Him. Here he says, the Lord opened Lydia's heart. Earlier, he had talked about Jesus granting repentance, that is, turning us around from our sin to face God and to seek God. In chapter 14, Luke talked about God opening the door of faith to the Gentiles. In chapter 13, he talked about people who were appointed for eternal life believing. The Apostle Paul in his letters uses other descriptions of this. He talks about our being raised from the dead. When we were dead in trespasses and sins, we were raised with Christ, Ephesians 2. Of God's light shining into our dark hearts, 2 Corinthians 4. Of God making us new creations in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5. Of God giving us a new birth, Titus chapter 3. And of course, that's what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. However it's expressed, the point is always the same. When anybody comes to Jesus in faith, it's because the Father has drawn him or her by his word and spirit to come to trust in Christ. That humbles us. But it also gives us great joy and hope because that means nobody is beyond the reach of the grace of God. Nobody is beyond the reach of the power of the Holy Spirit to draw people to faith in the gospel. And we can go forward with great confidence that God will use His Word to bring the people whom He has appointed to eternal life to faith as we share the good news with them. Well, Lydia responds immediately, being baptized and then saying, almost as the reflex of her heart, you need hospitality, you need a place to stay. And so she invites them all to come and to stay in her extended household. She's received the welcome of the Father into the family of God. So how can she help but welcome others into her home? One piece of the core group is in place. Second piece, as I mentioned, we're not sure about this slave girl in the long run, but I believe at least that she came to faith as the Lord set her free from demonic possession. Here she is. She's following Paul and Silas and the team around town. She's known as somebody who has is kind of clairvoyant and has a glimpse into the future because she has this evil spirit that sometimes can make her, enable her to guess at things in the future apparently, at least often enough that her owners can make a profit off of her fortune telling. And she's following them around, yelling at the top of her lungs, these men are messengers of the Most High God, come to tell you the way of salvation. And Paul doesn't want her to do it. Now, what kind of a church planter is that? Hey, advertising is important, right? Is she saying anything that's false? No, as a matter of fact, she's not. Well, it's hard to know what she understood by it or what the Philippians would have understood by it. When they heard Most High God, they might have thought of Zeus. They might have thought of some other gods served in the ancient East. 
They wouldn't necessarily have thought of the true and the living God who had called Israel out of Egypt and made them his own people, the God who created the heavens and the earth. But formally, her words are true in one sense, no matter how she or her hearers would have understood. What she meant by salvation, we don't know. What people would have understood by salvation, we don't know. But she was right, in a profounder sense perhaps, than she understood. She had come, they had come, Paul and Silas and the others, to preach the way of salvation. But Paul didn't like that advertising. As, as Luke says here, he became greatly annoyed. Um, why was he so annoyed? Well, because, I mean, there's advertising and there's advertising. Sometimes you don't want to have advertising from certain sources. Paul silences her for the very same reason that Jesus often, in his earthly ministry, would not allow the demons to speak through those whom they had possessed, because Jesus refused to accept a testimonial from an ally of Satan who is a liar from the beginning. Even when Satan speaks truth, he's speaking it with a crooked tongue. And here, Paul knew that the testimony of this girl who was known to be possessed of a spirit was part of the whole complex of paganism and superstition would do more harm than good to the cause of the gospel. And of course, he wasn't really annoyed at her. He was annoyed at this spirit of divination that had taken her over and tyrannized her and of course made her also the subject to exploitation by her owners. And so he turns and with the authority that is his because he trusts in Jesus and represents Jesus as an apostle, he says to her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, not to her, to the Spirit, I command you to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Came out that very hour. Actually, that same verb is in the next verse, although the version I'm reading kind of disguises it a little bit. But it's interesting that Luke uses it again. When her owners saw that their hope of profit came out, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Very interesting. If you were to trace through the sources of opposition and persecution for the gospel throughout the book of Acts, typically you find two motives on the part of the enemies of the gospel. We've talked a little bit about Saul of Tarsus and about all that was going on in his heart and mind as far as we can tell from his other writings. But typically from Jewish sources, there was a kind of a zeal for God that bridged over into jealousy because of the power and the influence of the gospel. It was jealousy. It was not wanting to give up their control of those who had come to them as the religious leaders of Israel not willing to humble themselves before the message of the cross that declared that we have to depend on Jesus and not on our faithful keeping of the law. Jealousy and pride, typically on the part of the Jewish leaders. When Gentile pagans oppose the gospel, it's usually all about money. It's all about greed. But sometimes they mask it by appealing to civic pride. And that's what these owners of the slave girl do, you see. They're upset because they're losing money. 
She can't be exploited any longer to provide a living for them. She's useless. But that's not what they say when they go to the magistrates. Hey, this guy took away our money. No, no, they say these Jews, there's a little bit of racial bias there, anti-Semitism, these Jews are teaching customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept. Now, I need to explain that just briefly, okay? Not everybody who lived in the Roman Empire was a Roman. Technically, the people who lived in the city of Rome and had been born there were originally the Romans, but then Roman citizenship became a great privilege. If you're born in the United States, no matter where your parents come from, in fact, no matter whether they're here, legally or illegally, you are an American citizen. Not so in the Roman Empire. Only certain people got to be Roman citizens, and originally it all had to do with that capital city in Italy. But over time, it came to be extended in other ways. You could be granted Roman citizenship if you did the favor for a noble, or if Caesar wanted to uh, reward you in some way. Somehow or other, Paul's parents were Roman citizens. And so Paul, as a child of a Roman citizen, as a son of a Roman citizen, was not only a Jewish rabbi and Pharisee, he was also a Roman citizen. So it's kind of ironic at this point that these slave owners are saying, those guys are teaching things that we Roman citizens can't do. Illegal for us, beneath us. Because Paul, at least, maybe Silas too, is a Roman citizen. But what they're saying, they're claiming to be Romans because if you were a citizen of a city that Rome had recognized as a colony, and that was a specific honor given to certain cities, a citizen of that city was also a citizen of Rome. To be a citizen of Philippi, because it was a colony, meant that you were a citizen of Rome. That's interesting because Paul talks a lot about citizenship in his letter to the Philippians. And he says, our citizenship, end of chapter 3, our citizenship is in heaven. That's something the Philippians would have especially understood. We don't live in Rome, but we really are citizens of Rome because we are in Philippi, and Philippi is a kind of an extension of Rome. Paul uses that analogy when he writes to believers, and he says, we don't live in heaven yet, physically, but we really are citizens of heaven already because of what Jesus has done for us. Well, you see, these guys, back to the main point, are motivated by greed, but they know that they're not going to get very far to get Paul and Silas punished by simply saying, hey, we're greedy, we lost our, our cash cow. <laughs> to call the little girl that, that's not fair, but uh, that's, what the, that's the way they treated her. And so they appeal to the pride of Philippi to be Roman citizens. And the magistrates, because now they've gotten a huge crowd whipped up, the magistrates don't know what to do. And so they, without any trial, without any hearing, they just order Paul and Silas to have their togas ripped off and to be beaten with rods, as the Romans tended to do, and thrown into jail. That girl is set free. What becomes of her, Luke doesn't tell us. But she may become another piece of the core group in that new church plant in Philippi. And Paul and Silas end up in jail. 
Paul and Silas, of course, spend the whole night saying, Silas is saying to Paul, what did you mean you saw a man from Macedonia saying, come and help us? You must have eaten something wrong the night before. No, no, no. You're laughing, that's good. Because that's not what they're doing at all. They're not licking their wounds and they're not moaning. What are they doing? They are singing for joy. Singing for joy. Earlier in Acts, after the apostles were beaten and threatened, Luke tells us at the end of chapter 5 that they went out from the Jewish high council having been abused and imprisoned, beaten, insulted, and threatened, rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name of Jesus. What an honor. What a privilege to suffer for the name of Jesus. And so these two messengers of Jesus are keeping everybody awake in prison, praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners are listening as well, deep into the night. I mentioned Paul's letter to the Philippians. Read Philippians 1 sometime in the light of this, where Paul says to the Philippians, to you it has been given not only to believe on Jesus Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. Because you face the same struggle that you saw me undergo, and now hear that I still undergo. They heard it. They saw it. And this is at least one window on what Paul is referring to in that letter. And of course, in that whole first chapter, Paul is saying, as he is now in prison and perhaps awaiting trial in Rome or else waiting extradition to Rome, Paul says, I don't really care whether I live or die. To me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. But my aim is that whether I live or whether I die, Christ would be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. That's my goal. That's my aim, that Christ would be preached. So Paul and Silas are having the time of their lives singing praises to God while their backs are bleeding and their ankles are aching because they're in stocks and their stomachs are growling because they haven't been fed anything. How do I know all that? Well, because in a few minutes, after the earthquake, the jailer is going to do all the things for him for them that he should have done before, like wash their wounds and give them something to eat. He wouldn't have done that if he'd taken any good care of them before that. So they were just locked behind bars in the deepest part of the prison, and yet they're rejoicing. And suddenly the earthquake comes. When earthquakes come in the Bible, it's the Lord coming and making the earth shake, and that's clearly what's happening here. Suddenly the Lord signals his sovereign, saving, mighty presence in a strong earthquake, as he did at Sinai, as he did when Jesus died on Calvary, as he did when the church in Jerusalem prayed in Acts 4, and he breaks the prison open. Back in the Psalms, Psalm 107 talks about people who get into all kinds of terrible fixes, Sometimes it's their own fault. Sometimes it's just because they live in this fallen world. But the Lord rescues them when they call out to the Lord. One of the stanzas of that psalm in verses 10 through 16 is about people who are prisoners in affliction and in irons. 
And then it says in verse 13, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness in the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works for the children of men. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. And the Lord in Philippi says, I'll still do that. Of course, he's done this earlier in Acts as well, brought his apostles out of prisons in ways that confused people. He brought Peter out of a prison when Peter was under a death sentence in Acts chapter 12, led Peter out of a prison, and in the morning, when Peter couldn't be found, Herod, who had imprisoned him, had the guards interrogated and then put to death which was the standard penalty for having let a prisoner escape in the Roman Empire. That's why at the earthquake, at the sight of the open prison doors, as the jailer rushes down and begins to see that the whole place is burst wide open, he whips out his sword and he's about to fall on it. Better death by his own hand than torment and shame and ultimately death by the hand of his superiors. And Paul, as you know, shouted, Stop! We are all here. Not just Paul and Silas, but all the other guys who deserve to be behind bars. For whatever reason, the Lord held them all back and that, that jailer hadn't lost a single one of his prisoners. And he, I suspect, as much by that fact as by the earthquake was so astonished and overwhelmed. The fact that no prisoner had left when he could have left, he falls down before his prisoners. The captor falls down before the captives. And he says, what must I do to be saved? You have something. You have a calm, you have a peace, you have a joy. Even when... Upstairs, my family and I were listening to you singing. Oh, I don't know if he could hear. It doesn't say he could hear. The prisoners could hear. But maybe they could hear. In any case, he knew that Paul and Silas had responded to their suffering in a way that was not explainable by normal human causes. You have what I need. I need rescue. What must I do to be saved? Wow, what a great question. Would you love to be asked that question from time to time? I always hope that somebody sitting next to me on a plane is going to ask me that question. I usually can't figure out how to get into good conversations along those lines. One time I had a flight from San Diego to San Jose and sat down next to a man who told me about how active his wife and his daughter were in church and how much they enjoyed it. I said, your wife and your daughter, but not you, because he knew I was a pastor. He said, well, no, I'm Jewish. I said, well... And we talked, and his, it, it, we had fascinating. We agreed that at the end of that 45 minute flight, or almost an hour, that we wished it had been a transcontinental flight. And uh, exchanged email addresses, and I emailed him, but he didn't email me. But we had you know, a wonderful time of talking. He says, Sometimes I think maybe Jesus was our Messiah, and we missed him. I said, Yeah, I think you could have something there. You know, think a little bit more about that. He'd had a lot of contact with Jews or Jesus. But I don't usually have people ask me that question. Maybe you don't either. But this man is so overwhelmed 
with the power of God, not only to break the prison open, but to keep the prisoners there. And with what he saw in Paul and Silas, that he says, what must I do to be saved? And of course, they know the answer. Believe. Trust. Rely on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You and your household. Early in the week, the the second book on Acts that I had the privilege of writing, Let's Study Acts, disappeared quickly over there. I don't know how many copies we had. As far as I can tell, as I've Googled periodically to see whether anybody's actually ever read that book, it has one review that was published in the United Kingdom. And uh, the review says, this is a very nice book. It shows you a lot about the themes in Acts and so on. But be war- forewarned, this author is an, it believes in infant baptism. I thought, now where in Acts did I tip my hand? Did I show my cards? I suspect it's passages like this. It may be also in Acts 2, 38, 39, the promises to you and to your children and to those far off, that the covenant promises don't exclude the children, but include others outside. It may be that too. But it's striking that in these passages, it's in Cornelius, it's here, that when God lays hold of the head of a household, the gospel lays claim to the household. That doesn't automatically mean that everybody is saved or brought to faith, necessarily. I mean, after all, even one of Jesus' own disciples turned traitor, whom Jesus himself taught, So that kind of external connection is not an absolute guarantee because there are covenant breakers within the household of God. But God has laid hold on this man's household. Do we know that there are infants in his household? No, we don't. But the Holy Spirit judges it significant to talk about God dealing with this man and his household just as God deals with Abraham and his household and Isaac and Jacob and so on. So I suspect that's where that reviewer caught me tipping my hand that I do believe in infant baptism and God's covenant faithfulness moving through families down through generations. Certainly we see it here as Luke three times over emphasizes that this jailer's faith has impact for the whole household. You will be saved as you believe you and your household. He was baptized, verse 33. He and all his family, verse 34. He rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. The grace of God at work in our families. We've tasted it this week in wonderful ways. We've rejoiced to have you kids here with us in the evening and learning about the Lord Jesus in the other classes in the morning and just enjoying being part of the family of God together. Salvation embraces whole households. And just as the immediate, instinctive response of Lydia to the grace of God in hospitality moved her to offer hospitality to Paul and to Silas So now this hardened jailer who cared nothing about the comfort or the health of his prisoners before Jesus laid hold of his heart, now notice what he does. As they spoke the word of God to him and to all who were in his house, 
He took them that same hour. He washed their wounds. He was baptized. He brought them up into his own home. And he put food before them. He became their servant because he had been served by Jesus, the servant of the Lord. He'd received the grace of God through faith in Jesus. And immediately the impulse of his heart was to respond with grateful love toward those who belong to Jesus as well. So, what's the most amazing demonstration of the power of God in this chapter? If you say the prison break, I have to disagree with you. Now, the earthquake and the shaking of the prison doors open, that's pretty amazing. I admit it. But the more amazing thing is that God conquers and unlocks human hearts. Lydia, a fearer of God, hungry for the God of Israel, longing to know the true and the living God, but still God needed to open her heart to receive the gospel that Paul delivered. The slave girl, unwillingly testifying to the truth of the gospel. These are servants of the Most High God who have come to tell you the way of salvation. Whatever she understood by it, the spirit that tyrannized her was compelling her to speak those words, set free from that tyranny, unlocked, set free. And then the captor, the jailer, set free to serve set free to reflect Jesus who washes our wounds and ministers to our needs. And Jesus who says, come sit at my table. Let me feed you with my grace. Let me, your master, be your servant. Amazing. Maybe this is not so unlikely a core group for a church plant after all because they have the one thing in common, despite all their differences, the one thing in common that will change this city and change the world. They've been set free by the grip of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the way You work in surprising ways, in different ways, and yet in ways that draw us all to the same place, out of our sin and self-righteousness, out of our stubbornness and defiance of You, into the joy, the humbling joy of being reconciled to You through the death of Your Son. Father, we know that if we had the time to sit around and to hear the story of each one of us and how Your grace has worked in our lives. Some of us born into families that have known and loved You and learning the wonderful news of Your grace from as early as we could understand the English language and Your Spirit working in us from before we can remember and responding with, so that we would respond with trust in Jesus and knowing that though we sin, and we do sin, all of us, that there is forgiveness for our sin because Jesus died for us. Others of us having walked for years in defiance of you, self-centered and self-glorifying, 
and having been captured in one way or another by the glory of Your grace and the Gospel of Your Son. If we could hear all those stories, we would marvel. Thank You for the samples of the stories You've given us in this one chapter as You set prisoners free to serve in the freedom of the Gospel, to serve one another, to serve the cause of Christ, to bear witness to the wonders of Your grace. We praise You. We bow before You. We bring You glory. We ask You for the grace to sing songs of celebration even in the midst of our sufferings that others might see in us a joy and a peace that cannot be explained in merely human terms and might, even in times of our suffering, be prompted to ask, what can I do to be saved? Father, we ask that You would make us people who are so overflowing with wonder at Your love to us that others cannot help but notice and ask us a reason for the hope that is within us. And when those questions come, when those opportunities, those doors are open, we ask You, Father, for the words to speak that others might have the door of faith open to them and be given repentance by Your Spirit as we share the good news of Jesus. We pray in His name. Amen.